0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. A former City of Hamilton employee with ties to the white supremacists has been let go. What are the ramifications? Well, we'll talk about it. Also, the Ontario government is going to be adding more trips to the West Harbour GO station coming up very soon. And the new school year is just weeks away and negotiations will soon begin with high school teachers and the government of Ontario. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now.
1: Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML...
0: Uh, CBC is reporting today that uh, Mark LeMeyer, uh, who is the, uh, st- well, we think still staff employee, could be a former employee right now, uh, who has been on paid leave for the last little while for uh, obviously his ties to white supremacist groups, uh, will not be returning to work, according to uh, what CBC is reporting today. Uh, but that's about all they're talking about. Uh, City Hall is being tight-lipped about that, about whether he was uh, fired or whether he has uh, voluntarily decided to step aside. We don't know what's going on. But you're getting into that whole realm about dismissal uh, and and the ramifications of that. And to try to explain some of that for us, uh, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Lior Samfiru, partner in Samfiru to Mark LLP, uh, and LLP, uh, because this is all about the, the, the dealings with law and employment law, and it can get a little tricky sometimes, and sometimes the sorts of things we want to see happen uh, are not necessarily going to happen because of the law. Lior, thank you for the time. It's great to have you with us again today. Thanks for having me on. Now, I know you can't get into specifics about this, but uh, we can talk about this in a general basis, about uh, dismissal, firing, that sort of thing, and, and who's got rights and who doesn't have rights like this. Uh, uh, and, and I guess there's a couple of different ways we can approach this. Uh, given the fact that this individual was on paid leave, obviously the employer, in this case the city of Hamilton, uh, seemed to have a concern about him or his employment. I mean, I guess let's try to put it in that context. Uh, can, you, can you outright fire a guy for something like that?
2: So the, the reality is, Bill, that an individual can be let go for any, any reason pretty much at any time uh, as long as uh, the employer is willing to pay compensation. Now, what they can't necessarily do is let him go for cause, which means he did something so bad, so terrible, that they can now let him go without any compensation. The issue here is this, that this alleged behavior, based on, on what we know what we've read, predates his employment and unless they found during their investigation that that he was involved directly and during office hours in conduct that breached their expectations, that breached their code of conduct they're going to have a very difficult time to rely on on conduct reprehensible as it may be that happened years before before he was an employee that didn't impact his job performance they're going to have a difficult time to rely on that as just cause so if they want him gone they're going to have to pay him out
0: how difficult is it to prove uh, cause to say this is a legitimate reason we don't think we should compensate this individual that's a that's a pretty high bar to reach isn't it
2: it is an extremely high bar and in the employment law field we refer to it as the capital punishment of the employment relationship because it's reserved for the worst offenders so the fact that someone may have done something wrong does not necessarily at all Mean that they can be let go for cause. It would have to be something uh, that that's so bad that makes continued employment impossible. And usually, the conduct would have to be such that th- that it happens during work hours, or that it directly impacts the job, as opposed to something that uh, happens completely unrelated to work. And in this case, you know, no one is going to disagree that the conduct is 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 one that most of us will find offensive, or the, the uh, alleged acts were ones that we don't approve of, but unless they can show that now it makes continued employment impossible, it's not going to properly be ground for termination for cause.
0: Okay, I'm just going to play devil's advocate here for a second. If that, if in fact, that's the the, the tactic the city is taking here. Uh, could you, the, the employee, uh, in this case Mr. LeMire, not come back and say, well, look, you knew what I was when you hired me. Why is it all of a sudden a problem?
2: And and yeah, he absolutely can, and and that to the extent that the city wanted to rely on just cause, that's another argument that he would have as to why that that doesn't hold any water. But the city can simply say, well, now that we understand the the extent of your involvement, or now that we uh, you know we have more information, we decide that it's unacceptable. But keeping in mind that they don't even have to do that; they can simply say, we've decided because today is Friday. To let you go, and as long as you're prepared to pay him what they owe him, and, you know, given his tenure, it could be substantial, then they're legally entitled to do that.
0: Yeah, this guy's been employed, as we mentioned, for quite some time here for the City of Hamilton, and which raises an awful lot of questions. Uh, do you start a negotiation with something like that, or is there a, a, a template that you follow to, to decide on what compensation might be available?
2: So the first question that uh, the city would have to consider, or the first issue is, did he sign an employment agreement at some point during his tenure? And the reason for that is the employment agreement, if, if the city did its job, may specify what he'd, he would be owed, and it could actually substantially limit his entitlement. So it may not be a huge cost if he signed an employment agreement limiting his entitlement. If he did not, then at that point we, they have to look at a number of factors, his age, his position, the length of his employment, his future employability, and on that basis, uh, assess an, an appropriate amount. And yes, usually, usually there's a negotiation here. So they would say, we'll pay you X, and him or his lawyer will, will engage and ask for more. And in the vast majority of cases, these matters can resolve quietly and privately without any legal intervention. Uh, and that's what usually happens. But the first question is, did he sign an employment agreement? And if he did, how much or how does that limit his entitlements?
0: Would that, in, uh, uh, that would not be common knowledge, then. That would not be a public document, then, if it's an employment agreement. That, is, that would be confidential, wouldn't
2: it? It would, yes. The, the, the actual agreement and the terms of the agreement are not going to be public knowledge. It's not going to be something that the public will know about, uh, and, and it's between the employer the city and, uh, and this individual, exactly.
0: Uh, again, as I say, we don't know the specifics of what's going on in this case here with the city of Hamilton with this individual, Leor. But uh, it, let's again talk about this in a, in a more generic sense. Uh, this is a high-profile case for obvious reasons, and it has made the news. Uh, the, you know, separation or agreements and and and, and employments and firings, etc., oftentimes don't make the news because they you know they they're commonplace. They happen every day. As as the legal aspect to this, do you handle it differently because it's a high-profile case? I mean, there's always going to be people that say, what's going on? How much is this guy getting? What about this? What's the payout going to be? It's, it, it's got to be a rather complicated process, but at the same time, there's, a, as you know, a demand from the public here to say, we need to find out.
2: And, and especially when this guy works for, for the city, the city has to consider the public perception and then look at it from a public relations standpoint, where if this was... Uh, a different private sector organization that the public doesn't know about, uh, and this guy is, uh, you know, not is a small cog in that machine. Even though the employer may find the behavior reprehensible, they may may choose not to terminate his employment. Whereas an organization such as uh, the city, they can't afford that. Legality aside, and and payments aside, they have to make a move here because the the public perception is such that they cannot continue to employ this person. And, of course, they are going to be concerned about messaging. What does it mean that we we have to pay him? But that's where the law comes in and and ties their hands. Now, one of the issues, and and you said said this right at the top, is will this person resign? So I think it's important to make the, the, the point here is that it may not matter if he resigns. And if the city goes to him and says to him, you have two options, uh, sir, you can either resign or we let you go. If he has a result, says, well, I'll, I'll take option one, I'll resign. In the eyes of the law, that is still a termination because it's his employer that's decided he's no longer going to be working there. If he was given the option to continue working or to resign and he chose to resign, that is a resignation. If his options are to be fired or to resign, the law considers that to be a termination. He would still be owed compensation here, and we are probably looking for him north of a year's pay. And yet one of the consideration here is the fact that given the fact that this did get a lot of publicity, is this guy now going to be employable? It's likely not. Not too many people are, are probably going to hire him when they can Google his name and find out more about him. And that the reality is that that has an upwards impact on his entitlements because he's less employable, because he's going to take longer to find another job than someone else would. He actually may be additional and more compensation from, from the city. So all these things have to be considered by the city when they make their decision.
0: How significant would that additional compensation be? I mean, if, if, if as you mentioned uh, Leo, the template is, like you say, a year's salary, uh... but they say yeah but i'm never gonna get another job look what you guys have done to me uh... how does that impact that that, that final figure
2: it could absolutely double it, it really? really could uh... If, if in a situation where someone has become essentially uh... unemployable when and i think this person probably is uh... again i don't i don't know about his specific circumstances but it appears to me that that's the case he could be owed what we we usually refer to as the maximum when uh... when it comes to termination of employment which is two years pay it wouldn't be surprising for me if this person is owed that, and uh, if he was offered any less, perhaps he or his counsel may choose to to pursue that to get that compensation. So that is potentially the, the the cost, the liability here for the city as much as two years' pay.
0: Do any of these actually end up going to court, or do they always most of the time anyway try to get another court settlement?
2: It is ninety nine percent of the time the case that matters settle outside the court, and usually well before it goes in front of a judge. It is really in situations where a uh, matter is complex and the parties have very different ways of viewing things that matters go to court. I would be extremely shocked if this matter went within a, within a hundred feet of a courtroom. Legally, it's not a complex matter. There's every, obviously other uh, you know public relations or, uh, relations and public policy issues, but legally, it's not a complex issue. So it is going to settle. We may or may not know how much he was paid, but it is going to settle and he will get paid.
0: There's really no upside to going to court and making this a public fight, is there? No, there's no, nothing
2: to be gained for anyone here, not to mention the fact, from a public relations standpoint, not to mention that it increases costs to everyone. So there's really nothing to gain, a lot to lose, which is why these matters settle. As will this, I'm sure.
0: Now you mentioned cost. Obviously, uh, you know lawyers are going to be involved in this negotiation. Uh, that idea about settling uh, does that include costs? I mean, or does each party just pay their own side in this, or, or do does one say, "Well, it's, you know what, uh, you got to pay my lawyer too"?
2: In virtually every settlement, there is a component of compensation for costs for for in, in employment matters for the employee or the employee's lawyer it, it's part of a negotiation it certainly does not have to be the parties can agree to settle on whatever basis they they uh, feel is appropriate but in every settlement almost and you know I'm going to say 90% plus there is some component of compensation for legal fees and the earlier in the process the matter settle the the smaller that component is going to be which again bodes well for the parties wanting to resolve this soon before legal fees escalate to uh, an unmanageable level,
0: Liar, is this uh, negotiation uh, and these these conversations at this point strictly between the city of Hamilton and and the legal representation for Lamire? Uh, the reason I'm asking because there's there's an, an extraneous element to this. Uh, he was outed essentially by a news source by Vice News. Uh, that's really the, it wasn't the city that said, "Hey, by the way, we've got something going on here." Uh, so there there was a factor involved in here which actually shone the light on this. Uh, it, it, again, hypothetically, the, the, the lawyers who are representing Mr. LeMire in a case like this, do you look at them and say, this is all because of you, and do you make them a, a, a liable party as well?
2: Well, to the extent that, that his outing or has to do with, with facts, things that, that are true, things that he did, then there's legally nothing wrong with that. Obviously, if they were spreading rumors and falsehoods about, about him, if he was being defamed, then clearly there would be a cause of action against those that did it. But in this situation, the fact that you know certain facts that were otherwise available or could be available if proper uh, sought uh, became to light, it doesn't, doesn't give anyone additional liability. It's simply now a matter between the city and him or his council to determine his status. And we've already read that he's not coming back to work. So it comes down to what is now the, the, the price tag. What he will he be paid for the city making a decision that he 's no longer going to be working there,
0: lear, as always, thanks so much uh, the, an awful lot of questions and and as we mentioned, not so many answers coming from anybody involved in this and it 's always great to get your perspective on this. Appreciate the time today my pleasure, thank you take care Lear Sanfiro, of course, partner at uh, Sampiro to mark and Llp uh, talking about employment law uh, by the way and, and let 's assume that you know the, the stuff that cbc is reporting here is 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 factual that that seems to be the indication anyway. Uh, that uh, that he is not going back to work, and as Lior just told us, there's going to have to be some compensation. And uh, we may never find out how much that is. But that doesn't answer all the questions. Uh, the overriding question that, that I've been talking about and many others who have been involved in this and interested in this case is how did this happen in the first place? You know, there, there's a two-part question here. Did the city know what this guy was all about when he was hired? And if they did... Why did, why, you know, they were okay with that? That's a, that's a legitimate question. And the other part of that is if they didn't know who he was, then let's have a discussion about your vetting process. Because everybody else, as soon as you mention this name, anybody else who's involved in human rights and, and, and studying white supremacy and talking about hate crimes, as soon as you mention this guy's name, they say, oh, yeah, I know that guy. Yeah, I he was with Hurt Zundel, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So somebody didn't do their work or they did do their work and didn't think this was such a big deal. And that's a discussion that the city has to have, and that's not supposed to be happening behind closed doors. We, the people, have a right to know exactly what went on there. So we're not finished exploring this, and we're certainly not finished answering, asking some of those questions. This, this time, the city staff we will uh, continue to pursue this.
1: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show
0: podcast on 900 CHML. Increased GO service it has been promised by, uh, well, a number of different provincial governments and different premiers from time to time. And uh, for a while there, it looked like it just isn't going to happen. Well, yesterday, we got some good news about the GO service, the GO train service that's going to be happening. Uh, Jason Farr is the counselor for the uh, Ward 2 area downtown where the GO stations are located. And he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to bring us up to speed on this. Jay, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us today.
1: No problem, Bill. Yeah, we're at a point where uh, we go from two trips in the morning to four, and we call it good news. We're so desperate at this point.
0: Well, it's been a long time coming, and I know that you've uh, been consistent about this. Mayor Eisenberger has been consistent about this, but uh, did you get any indication that this was going to happen? Because, I mean, just a couple of months ago, uh, they were musing at Metrolink that it could be another eight or ten years before we saw all-day service here. Well, I,
1: I, this and previous governments, I've I've not had uh, any indication that nobody wanted to stop moving Ontario uh, to use their own uh, expression or or uh, expanding uh, GO service and multimodal options and those sorts of things. And, and uh, you know, Ford said all along that was his intention, and uh, so there was never that. And in and to answer your question, about a week ago, I was hearing rumblings, and even I believe Matthew Van Dogen had a story in the spec that um you know we're close to a deal with that that you know short but crucial piece of track between the West Harbor station and uh, the York Street bridge uh, which obviously opens the door for uh that all day go that was promised by Dalton to begin in 2015 and that uh, still hasn't happened yet. So, th- hearing those rumors a few weeks ago, Bill, I was, you know, that was an indication that maybe something was about to occur.
0: It, that's that's been a stumbling block for years and years and years, and I'm, I'm surprised it has. It's taken this long for them to finally resolve that. But with this announcement, though, Jade, is that as you mentioned, an indicator that there is a resolution which could possibly free this up for all day go service if that's g- going to be the case.
1: I'd only be speculating. Yeah, of but, course. You know, I mean, it's a it's a big piece of the puzzle, and you know, it's been a long while where we've had very limited service, and to double up on that from the West Harbour station, and of course across the province, there's been I think eighty moves in increasing uh, uh, ridership, go buses, go trains, those sorts of things. Um, uh, quite obviously, there's an initiative from the province to start expanding, uh, but 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 here at home in that hyper local issue between the West Harbour station and that York Street Bridge. You know, any kind of expansion on service from West Harbor for morning and afternoon commuters, commuters, uh, that to me is a, a sign or a symbol that there must be something happening, happening, and, and, and that coupled with, you know, what we were hearing last week.
0: Well, and uh, you, uh, you're right. I mean, you know, we have to give the province they do on a situation like this when it comes to, to this kind of transit, especially uh, with GO Transit. Uh, because they, with all the cutbacks, and you and I could talk till noon if we wanted about the impact that's going to have on the city, Uh, they do seem to be pretty consistent about saying, yeah, we're going to maintain this, actually increase it, because I know, as you mentioned, uh, we've got relatives up in Barrie, and and they've just had increases uh, in their GO train service up there. So they, they do seem to understand the importance of getting people off the highways and getting them from point A to point B. So it only stood to reason, I guess, that Hamilton was going to be part of that process at some point.
1: Yeah, and, and, you know, it, let's not uh, let's not think otherwise. I mean, there's nobody that I've spoken to since the Metrolinx announcement yesterday in this city that isn't, you know, encouraged, that isn't, uh, you know, happy about what, what we've heard. I mean, we've needed this for some time. And, and um, you know, just as Kitchener-Waterloo is happy, they've been lobbying for some time on increased service and other communities outside of the greater Toronto area, let alone the GTHA. Um, you know there's 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 a lot of celebration going on uh because you know it, it's it's long desired it's it's not something that hasn't been desired for some time
0: let's uh talk about the the way this is going to follow up or come to big Heather, rather here in the hamilton area we do have two go stations a lot of communities do uh and and there's obviously some concern here about who's going to go where uh the hunter street station is still being used and then of course you've got the west harbor station uh the increased service uh is going to go where West Harbor.
1: Okay. And, and the indication, speaking with Metrolinks, is that, you know, that's their focus. There is four daily uh, uh, at different commuter times at the Hunter Station, but the expansion we're talking about today is specific to the West Harbor Station.
0: All right, so what's the long-term plan for Hunter Street, then, as far as you know? Yeah, that that's, you know, the last person I, like, official,
1: uh, provincially, that I spoke to about that would have been uh, Minister McMeekin, at the time, Minister McMeekin. And, and um, at that time, I didn't get a sense that... That the minister wanted to take Hunter completely off the table. Now there was a different environment then. I mean, I don't think those CN talks were even beginning at that point, and uh, uh at, you know, which are crucial not to the Hunter station, but obviously crucial to the West Harbour station and anything east. You can go as far as Niagara. That that little section of track wasn't just about Hamilton; it was about anything east of that West Harbour Coast station or anything east of the York Bridge, but. I had that uh, you know, impression at the time and I haven't lost that impression or no one said otherwise that Hunter would be completely off the
0: table. do we need to I mean it's it's not as if they're on the same line I mean you know the, the, there's a, there's a disconnect here from a geographical standpoint right now and I'm wondering if if there's even any rationale to say, well let's just face Hunter Road altogether and just increase all the services down at West Harbor.
1: Well, and from a downtown councillor's point of view, yes, we do, I would suggest now until until we have an all-day go at, at the at the West Harbor station, uh, the more options we can have for for commuting, particularly weekday commuting, morning, afternoon rush, um, that's the, the better. That's the best solution. So I mean, if we're going to capitalize on the fact that we have two stations within spit distance of each other, uh, one in the central part of the downtown, one in the in, in the northwest part of the downtown. Uh, you know, and, and more more action in terms of uh, leaving and coming and going is, is going to occur at both. Well, I'm fine by that. Ultimately, though, I, I get a sense, and, and in fact, it seems uh, the MetroLink folks are very focused primarily as we go forward with expansion on West Harbor only.
0: And I I mean, listen, even from a traditional standpoint and even, I guess, a sentimental standpoint, I I hate to see something in the way of a shutdown happen on Hunter Street. It's an iconic building, of course. It's got a great history, uh, unique architectural style. We get that. But uh, anybody that said to go pick up relatives, uh, you know, from time to time, even at the end of the day, uh, it's a pretty busy spot. The only thing that's lacking, as we've talked about in the past, is parking. But I don't think there's any solution to that, really, is there? It doesn't seem as if there's really a whole lot you can do about that.
1: Well, there's no shortage within a few blocks, but right out front, I mean, kiss and go, limited, taxi cab stands, limited, uh, even, uh, metered parking, uh, limited, uh, and to be honest, not to, uh, change direction of our conversation here, Bill, but, you know, we do have a three block stretch of, uh, sort of missing link on a bi-directional bike lane along Hunter and it has been some years and a great deal of, of uh, consolation that we'll finally see that that link filled in between uh, James Street and uh, uh, down to John Street, sorry, McNabb Street down to John Street, and that that's going right in front of that Hunter Station that we're talking about now, the GO station for buses and trains, and that's going to have a bit of an impact. I mean, there's still opportunities for cabs. There's still opportunities for the kiss and go. There's still opportunities for folks to put money in the meter and park and, and and go see Simpson Waggle or or some of the businesses along that stretch. Uh, However, you know, what, what you're speaking to is an already limited sort of capacity uh, that that will be limited further once the infrastructure, the cycling infrastructure, goes into place.
0: Yeah, I understand. There's still going to be the the possibility of traffic stopping there. And but I mean, you've been down there, Jay, like at five o'clock in the afternoon or at seven o'clock in the morning when people are getting dropped off, and it's it's crazy busy down there at the mm-hmm. same time. And if you're going to start eliminate spots, and I understand the need for bike lanes, I get that, uh, but the. <laughs> you're going to get an awful lot of complaints about this because a lot of people are going to say look it's just not convenient anymore and that's it seems counterproductive to try to get people to take the train or the bus uh, depending on the circumstance of course and just say yeah but you can't get down to the station in a convenient fashion.
1: Well I'll I'll say this I think you know we've done some polling we've done some exit polling from users uh, as part of the consultation process so it wasn't it's just the cycling community, although they, they were very helpful and engaging on this over many years, and they've been very anxious to see this missing link take, take place. But, but a large majority of the users, Bill, will park and walk to the station. There is no parking nearby, never has been, uh, but they'll go to a nearby surface lot or they already have their monthly parking, and then they get on the train. Or, or they get dropped off, and here, here's where the issues are now, as you're rightly pointing out, and and these issues are are are, are selected times. They are they are during the, I'd say six thirty to nine period in the morning, and probably three thirty to five in the afternoon. So it's not all day every day that we're logged, jammed uh, in front of the go station, uh. But but these are, um, uh, folks for the most part who are either getting dropped off, and believe me, people will. Jump out of the car right in the middle of the lane, and that's why we get these log jams. And they've been doing that anyway. Or they've uh, a large majority that I can see are parked a block or two blocks away, and they're walking to the station anyway. But you know, all this said, and back to you know our, our conversation now. Ultimately, it seems that MetroLink is very focused now on West Harbor, and there's not a lot of talk or focus on on Hunter Street. That's not to say they're going to pull away trains. Uh, consistently now, they've had the, the uh, commuting. Commuting, I think it's four in the morning, four in the afternoon. Uh, they have they, in the announcement yesterday. They didn't say anything about pulling back on the, our other downtown station. They just celebrated. We celebrated them and their announcement about the doubling up on on West
0: Harbor. And, and as much as we're talking about this now and the implications of this, ultimately it's their decision, isn't
1: it? <laughs> That's the other thing. Absolutely, uh, you know. And and I, I can tell you, I don't know about other councillors, but I are They're not a a bad corporation to work with, Uh, obviously with LRT. And when you're an LRT supportive counselor, you're talking to Metrolinx probably a little more than someone who's uh, not or or someone who's on the fence. Uh, And as well, when you have a Metrolinx headquarters in your downtown, and and that is the Hunter Street Station, uh, you know, you're running into these folks regularly. And they're they're hardworking people. I just spoke to the fellow in charge of... um, uh, the uh, uh, Presto passes. So there's a whole department on Presto and trying to uh, amalgamate the the costs of transit, particularly in and around the Toronto area. Very uh, very difficult work, very challenging when you have different uh, price points for for higher order transit, whether it's you know buses, trains, the trolleys. It's it's uh, it's a it's a significant piece of the puzzle for MetroLink as they try to integrate. And a lot of that work, a lot of the discussions happen in their offices here in Hamilton. So they've, they've been great, and, and I've never doubted that they were making efforts as far as their role. I mean, there are provincial politicians and different offices, policy makers that have been working in terms of the negotiations with CN, not just Metrolinx, but they've been at that table, and I've never, uh, I, I don't think ever they've lost focus or track of getting that track available for the future goal that Mr. McGinty talked about, I think in 2010, saying that it would open a 2015, and
0: that goal being all-day go out of West Harbor. Just uh, let's crystal ball for just a second here, because we also know, of course, that there's going to be a Centennial Parkway uh, go station as well, uh, and that's, uh, as far as we know, still on the books. Uh, is that That's going to be linked to West Harbor, though, isn't it? Not to Hunter Street. Yeah, West Harbor. So that that's a continuation, which I guess is going to be part of their long-term plan, which is all-day go service all the way through to Niagara
1: absolutely. and and i I don't know if uh, you know I had a brief chat with Councillor Collins. he'd be better to speak to on this, but um he wasn't he was maybe one of the few that wasn't excited uh, from a Centennial Parkway uh, perspective because I guess there's a no known definitive date on the on the opening of that station. of certainly the construction's already be, begun. But it is a link. It is along the track that uh, features West Harbor Go. And again, it takes you all the way out to Niagara. They also saw that expansion too. They got some weekend service, which I think is going to be very helpful for an already burgeoning tourism uh, situation there in Niagara.
0: Now, f- what about in- inner city transportation? Uh, I know a lot of people were musing. Uh, this is back in the day when the remember well, you you'll never forget uh, the debate about all day go service or, or LRT, which is it going to be? And uh, you know my answer, and I think yours was well, both. Please, well, you yeah. know we we can get them both. <laughs> but there's some people that are saying, well, look, can I take the uh, the go train? From West Harbor over to Centennial Parkway, or will there be a stop in between? Uh, this was, of course, in the uh, on the eve of the uh, the Pan Am Games, and they're saying, well, you know, people want to go to the stadium. Maybe they can do this. Uh, I I don't see you building a, an intermediary stop uh, anywhere soon anywhere in the city. I mean, and that's really up to Go Transit, any uh, Metrolinx, wouldn't it be?
1: It is, and I'm sure they've heard. I mean, you you got your ear to the social media, and that's where uh, uh, that particular um, idea. Maybe even you want to call it an issue is generated most, and that's that. Is there a, a middle stop between Centennial and West Harbor? Uh, some have suggested. I've seen it on social media too, Gage or Sherman or something like that. I mean, ultimately, what what uh, I, I like these ideas because I mean, you don't want them too close together, uh, but Centennial is a long way from West Harbor. A spot in the middle. Uh, could only help us from an economic development standpoint. I mean, you know, one of the things I, I believe, and I hate speaking for other councillors, but I had that brief conversation with Chad yesterday, you know, there's a lot of investment going on around these stations. Not just in Hamilton, but, you know, that's the great thing about going. I think that's maybe something Ford and his government understands. You build the higher order, order transit stations in and around those stops, and we, we, we talked about it many times with LRT. There's a great deal of investment, and already, as it relates to Centennial, I know um, commitments are made on a whole lot of retail, a whole lot of commercial, in and then around that area, the land's available, and a lot of it is, in, in, you know, especially that residential piece, it's a lot of it is centered around uh, an activated
0: stop there well you saw that with West Harbor I mean way back in the day when they talked about building a a station there look at all the growth you know all of a sudden you had people that were buying houses down there condos down there that's when uh, the core urban group got involved with doing some some retrofits and stuff and those things sold out in no time I it'd be kind of neat to see something like that happening in the central part of the city down in the stadium area because you're right that anywhere you put a stop a train stop a train station it becomes a hub
1: Absolutely does, and then there's a great economic boost for the immediate, the immediate area and ultimately the city. So, um, I, I think that's part of the reason why folks uh, see that as an advantage and, and, and others uh, uh, as a convenience. I mean, there's a lot of folks moving and, and participating in the central part of our city between West Harbor and Centennial. And, like I say, it's, it's a, it's a if, if you get on at Lakeshore and head to TO, Bill, we both know you know clarkson uh there's there's a there's stop after stop after stop and they seem like a football field away they're not but they're 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 orchestrated in that capacity Uh, centennial to west harbor may be a little further uh distance from station to station than what we're used to when we hop on uh, a go train at lakeshore and start heading towards to or to to lakeshore i don't know this for sure though Uh, i mean you have your your regulars from metrolinks and they may be able to uh distinguished distances a little bit better than I but I, I, I like the idea and, 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 and to go full circle on our conversation I, I'm really very pleased that we had the announcement and I can tell you and you know this you've been down art crawls and, and super crawls and, and, and you've seen the, the influx and we've welcomed thousands of new folks a lot of them from Toronto who maintain their work there but just have chosen to live in a big beautiful Hamilton and part of their decision making process was that announcement a long, long time ago, and the discussions that have continued since about an all-day-go station at West Harbor. So many of them live in and around that West Harbor area, and you see the development applications. We still have, ai would say there's four or five. There's Jamesville that you and I talked about. Yeah. Pending, It's a major attraction for residential and commercial investment, particularly in a downtown core. And I think when I say I'm excited, I think there's probably a lot of other people who made that investment. Were equally excited.
0: Well, and as we've seen, uh, especially with the millennial generation uh, who share that kind of interest, uh, if, if you build a place for them to live right near that station, they don't need a car. They don't care about parking necessarily. No,
1: and and I. <laughs> if you want to do another one, we're all over. Uh, but but everything ties in. That's an argument I have often in planning committee when we ask for 0.5 ratios, where you know traditionally in councils that have been around the table a long time are used to one. Parking spot ratio. So a one a one to one, a unit gets one parking spot. Sometimes one point five. They they argue. Uh, I've been arguing, especially when you've got a high high walking score of ninety eight percent and a transit score of ninety five percent, and you're really close to a higher order transit station or a future tra- uh, a higher order transit station. 0.5 is fine, and and ultimately, it's the the, the private investor who's selling the the unit. Uh, and and they don't have a problem either. They're asking for lower ratios, particularly in the core, because they're selling the units to people who aren't
0: driving. Exactly. Well, the times they are changing. Uh, Good to have you on uh, here about some good news, Jay. Thanks so much for the time today.
1: Thank you. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Back to school right after Labor Day, of course. High school students will return to the classroom, and uh, yes, the teachers will be there, but... Their contract is up as of uh, the end of this month, October 31st, and uh, the negotiations are going to be pretty tough, given the uh, Ford government's record, of course, and uh, some of the changes they've tried to enact uh, in the education system. So what is the outlook? Uh, Well, let's uh, ask Harvey Bischoff. He is the president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. Uh, Harvey, thank you for the time. Great to have you back in the program today. Uh,
3: good morning. Glad to be
0: here. Good. Hope you had a good summer. Uh, but things are going to get a little testy, I would think, uh, because obviously we've, there's some unfinished business. You and I talked late last year about some of the changes that uh, the Ford government at that time uh, had instituted. Um, teachers have lost their jobs. Teaching assistants are, are on tender hooks right now as to whether or not they're going to have work there. Some of them won't even know that until, I guess, the end of this month. It's It's a pretty precarious situation all of a sudden.
3: It is indeed. Um, you know, my members will be returning to schools that will have fewer teachers, fewer courses available for stu- students, um, and uh, absolutely fewer supports in the form of people like, uh, like education assistants uh, and, and all sorts of other uh, caring professionals who provide additional supports uh, for students with various kinds of needs. Um, I give you the example of the Upper Canada School Board. They'd, they've laid off fully half of their professional student service personnel with no plan to replace the service those people provide. That's the you know, that's a, a, a indicator of what's coming.
0: Let's uh, you know what I want you to uh, put a, a little context to what you're you're suggesting and t- talking about here because uh, every time I talk to government officials about this, and we've had the the new education minister on the program here just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, th- th- it's always about numbers. You know, well, we have to reduce this, we have to reduce this. And they, they don't seem to spend much time or no time at all talking about the human cost of this. In other words, that service that's not going to be there anymore, how that's going to impact students.
3: You know, and this is exactly our concern. If you remove one out of every four um, teaching positions from Ontario's high schools, which is their plan, along with an uh, uh, unclear, at this point, number of support staff. You're going to jam kids into classes of, of 40 and more. You're going to take away the options that they currently have in order to pursue the futures that, that they want to pursue. Um, there is a cost to that, and in fact, we quantified some of that. with uh, We, we uh, commissioned the Conference Board of Canada, not exactly a left-wing uh, union-friendly organization, but one with a good reputation for evidence-based uh, research, and they told us every dollar you invest in education returns a dollar thirty to Ontario's economy. So there's a you know a, virtually a one-third leverage of of that money that you spend, but that it also raises graduation rates, and that takes when you raise graduation rates. You take pressure off the healthcare system. You take pressure off of the cost of social services. You take pressure off of the judicial system. Crime rates go down. Um, And that means, I mean, it means not just having fewer criminals. It means having fewer victims of crime as well. So those are the kinds of costs that we're talking about. Uh, Short-term costs for kids who aren't going to get the support and attention and courses that they need. And longer-term for the province's economy and for our whole social infrastructure.
0: I've already had some discussions over the summer with some parents that are very concerned about uh, that very op- uh, optics situation here. I mean, the, for instance, there are options that they wanted their students to to, to follow up on, and now those, some of those are not going to be available to them because I said, look, we just don't have the staff for it anymore, sorry, you're not going to be able to do that. Uh, I, I, I don't know how that's going to impact students in the long run, but I mean in the short term, uh, it's, uh, you know, when you're trying to plan your future and decide just exactly what you want to do and how what you have to do academically to get there, it's somewhat problematic when somebody pulls the rug out from under you.
3: And, and you know, this is only year one. It's their intention to reduce the number of teachers year by year to over four years un, until we have, as I said, one out of every four high school teaching positions lost. Uh, a very average sort of school that that uh, currently has 55 teachers, 800 kids, 55 teachers would drop down to 44 teachers. They'll lose 11 uh, 11 of their of their teaching staff. That's 66 courses that go out the door. That's a quarter of the of the uh, uh, extracurriculars that those teachers uh, typically provide. Um, you know, I, it's we're we're looking at uh, a, a system that's going to diminish year by year. Get get more and more impoverished um, and be a- less and less able to provide kids with the things they need. And I just don't see how that's a recipe for success.
0: Uh, the rhetoric that we heard from the Premier when these announcements were made uh, last year uh, essentially uh, puts the focus on well, people like you, Harvey, and say, well, you know what, the, the, the rank and file understand this. It's those union leaders that are causing all the problems. And, and I'm starting to hear the same talking points from uh, from Mr. Leckie now.
3: Yeah, I mean, look, they they would love to draw me into uh, into a, a, you know that sort of a public scrap. I'm not interested. Um, it it doesn't uh, it doesn't address any of our real problems. Let's talk about policy. Let's talk about what's good for kids. Let's talk about whether or not. Uh, Massively increased class sizes actually improve student achievement. Let's talk about kids losing access to the very STEM uh, courses that the minister talks so much about and claims that he wants to promote. But we know in Toronto, for example, the Toronto District School Board just slashed 80 of its STEM options because it didn't have the staff to provide them. Um, Let's talk about those things and not about, you know, a contest between individuals, which is really beside the point.
0: Is there any discussion at all uh, when, when you guys sit across the table from each other about the impact on the education system, about making students, you know, student-ready to, to go out and be competitive in, in a world economy? I mean, I, I'm hearing discussions just about every other part of the world right now about how we need to do more for education and get our students even better prepared because of some of the challenges that are going to be there in the 21st century. And all I hear about from the Ford government is, well, we have to cut costs.
3: Yeah. So, I mean, we haven't gotten to that stage in bargaining yet because we're still at the point of trying to sort out what will be bargained at the central table um, because we have this two-tier bargaining structure uh, in the education system in Ontario. But, you know, it's exactly what we've been trying to talk about publicly over and over again. Um, if, if, uh, if, If we have a government that sees education as just an expense and not an investment, we've got a problem. Um, the fact is the money that we put into education gets returned to the economy uh, um, it, with, you know, with
2: uh,
3: with a multiplier effect, but it supports students and their achievement on into their future. Um, and that's really what we need to be talking about. How do we prepare kids for a world that is changing rapidly? Um, you know, as we speak, how do we get them ready to, to take on the jobs of the future? That's what we need to be looking
0: at well the concern though harvey and speaking as a parent who's you know seen a lot of our kids go through the the education system uh my perception is it's going to be harder and harder for students to get a decent education here in the province of ontario uh the program cutbacks at the high school level they've essentially taken millions of dollars out of the university system and 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 the community college system uh they're facing the same sorts of challenges where they're offering fewer courses fewer support services uh, students that want to go through the system here and 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 get themselves a classic education, so they can you know get a decent job and, and earn a living and and enjoy the rest of their lives, are going to find it more and more problematic here.
3: A- absolutely true. And so you know, I mean, I'm I'm focused on the on the economic uh, on the employment side of things. Schools do much uh, much more than that. They they create uh, kids who engage in the civic life of uh, of their communities and and. Uh, the you know uh, high school graduates uh, in, get involved in community service and volunteering more than high school dropouts do, um, for example. Um, but you know on on the uh, on the economic side, it's something that we we still we absolutely have to uh, have to keep our eye on. Ontario competes in the world economy on the basis of its highly educated citizenry. Um, that's really that's our edge in the world, and if we diminish that then we're going to be falling backwards uh, in terms of competing uh, in a global economy.
0: And you're going to see some fallout from that as well. I was thinking the other day about this uh, list that comes out every year of the top 100 universities in the world. Well, three of them consistently are from Ontario, the University of Toronto, Western, and even McMaster's in the top 100 and has been for about the last 8 or 10 years. But that's because of quality of education and the programs that are are being offered. If all of a sudden you're going to start choking that source, uh, they're going to start falling down that list, and there's a reputation that's going to be lost there. And boy, once you lose a reputation, it's pretty hard to get it back.
3: Yeah, absolutely, and you know we, we're looking at we're looking at high school graduates graduation rates going backwards under the policies of, of this government. We will, you know, we've risen. Uh, up to eighty-six percent of students uh, graduating from from high school now. If that falls back to what it was in the Harris years, there'll be fewer students. Uh, you know, back in down in the low sixties or so, there'll be fewer students able to go to university. But what this government has done to to university funding is also absolutely appalling. And and uh, I mean, I represent members who uh, who work as support staff in a, a number of universities around the province. They provide valuable services to students. They're being squeezed. They're being laid off because the government is cutting funding from from um, from post secondary as well. They've taken money away from students who are going to be, uh, if they can get through it all, massively indebted by the cost of school. This is again, this is just not how you build a society for the future.
0: Harvey, what's going to happen? As we mentioned, the contract is is over at the end of this month. Uh, You you have already mentioned that you said the teachers will be there at at first day of school. Uh, They'll be in the classroom and and ready to to engage with students once again. But at that same time, there's got to be some negotiations beginning. Is there a timetable that's been set up here?
3: yeah so so first of all this is absolutely true my members support staff and teachers will will be at work on the first day of school and they'll be there doing their best for for kids providing the best possible education under these already uh trying circumstances we have a hearing with the labor board on august the 22nd very shortly after that they'll issue a decision on what will be bargained centrally that means um we should be back at a bargaining table middle to late September is probably a realistic timeline. When we get to that table, we're going to put proposals on the table that are good for Ontario students, good for Ontario's future economy. We hope the other side, uh, having heard, uh, you know, the, the opinion of, of parents, we've seen the polling. The public does not support uh, this government's approach to education. We hope they're going to take a reasonable uh, position and work with us as partners to get to a deal.
0: Well, let's uh, do a little crystal balling here. I mean, there have been some changes, as we mentioned. Uh, there is a new education minister, Mr. Leckie, t- has taken over. Uh, and uh, th- yeah, I'm I'm looking at the polling numbers, too, as you and I are talking. Right now, the government's sitting at about 19% approval rating. Uh, and that was down from about 41%, I think it was, when they got elected a year and a half or so ago. Uh, so I'm wondering if there's some, some second thinking going on in Queen's Park these days that maybe we need to, uh, to, to backtrack a little bit on some of these policies. Do you get any sense at all that there's going to be some flexibility from the ministry?
3: Well, you know, I mean, we're, we're going to have to wait and see. Uh, if I derive any optimism at all, it's from things like, uh, you know, what's happened with the Ontario Autism Program. Um, horrible what's what's happened to families and, and those kids at this point. But the government has stepped back. Uh, they're now doing consultations and they're talking about a proper needs-based funding um, for uh, kids on the autism spectrum. If they want to take that same kind of approach to uh, to education where they step back they look at the realities they look at at some uh evidence-based decision making about how we actually help kids thrive in our education system then then there's a then there's a path forward and i don't think they can um can continue to just flout the will of the public uh who who is not at all supportive of of uh, oversized classrooms, lost course options, and all of those sorts of things. So, um, you know, one hopes they have the political savvy to amend their position.
0: When you mentioned that there's obviously going to be some recommendations from the, the Labor Board here, do you have input into that? I mean, uh, some of the things that you'd like to see on the table when the negotiations do begin?
3: Yeah, we, we actually, so so we have this hearing um, on the 22nd, it is largely conducted by written submissions, so we've put in our submission to say we believe that that central table should address only the significant big ticket items where the government needs to be there as the funder. So let's talk about salary, benefit costs, staffing costs at that table, and let's leave everything else to local school boards. School boards have uh, for decades successfully negotiated things like class size caps, um, things like how you go about, you know, I mean, the School Boards Association wants to bargain everything at that central table. And to me, it's absurd to think that how a principal assigns one of my members to cafeteria supervision in Timmins would be decided at a table in Toronto. Um, it makes the process ridiculously uh, inefficient and and long and dragged out. Um, we would like a much more efficient uh, approach to this. So let's deal with a few central table items um, and leave everything else to local school boards.
0: School boards are an interesting uh, uh, part of this this puzzle that, that's starting to form right now. Because uh, as you've just mentioned, I mean, th- there were times when actually teachers' federations and, and school boards themselves would be in a, a bit of a conflicting situation. But the, 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 the stuff we're hearing from them uh, after these budget cuts were announced, uh, they're impacted too, obviously, Harvey. And, and uh, it seems as if you guys are on the same side on this uh, when it comes to that. Is that going to be helpful once you start negotiating with the ministry?
3: Well, here's here's the issue. So I I agree with what you're saying about school boards, about individual school boards by and large, and many of them have taken very uh, uh, laudable public positions about their concern about these cuts, and we we support that, and and you know we're mutually supportive if that's if that's what they're saying. Unfortunately, the, the school boards associations, their central body that represents them at the central table, so the Ontario Public School Boards Association seems to be far more interested in its ongoing bureaucratic existence than it is in fighting for students needs and fighting for a uh, uh, properly resourced public education system in fact they've become nothing less than collaborators with the government it is it is appalling um, and and they are they are working hand in glove with the government to to diminish the public education system the individual school boards, I think, need to start pushing back against their uh, their central body. Um, otherwise, we're going down a road where where um, local school board government governance will become meaningless in this province. There will be no point at it if they are simply uh, carrying the government's water at every turn.
0: Well, and that's going to be an interesting discussion then because I, I, well, I, I don't want to speak out of turn, but I mean, the discussions we've had in the past with the Hamilton Board of Education here, they've got some serious concerns about what's happening. So it sounds as if they have to get on the same song sheet or at least try to convince uh, their parent association to get on the same song sheet because uh, they're the ones that are facing an awful a lot of these cuts, and, and you're absolutely right, Harvey. Uh, all the government's done here, by they say, well, we're going to give money for transition and this whole thing. That just put, delays the problem. That means you might be able to get through this year, might, but next year it's going to be twice as hard and th- three times as hard the year after that, et cetera, et cetera. At some point, you're going to have to stop this.
3: Absolutely. I mean uh, you know we're we're losing the first group of of educators from our schools this year, but it just gets worse and worse over the next uh, the subsequent uh, three years it It is absolutely a devastating situation. Um, school boards, you know, I have heard from from the Hamilton wentworth board, for example, um, the entirely appropriate concerns uh, about what's happening, and I think they have taken they've taken the right positions, uh, the right positions publicly. But they do need to um, they need to shake up that central organization if we're all going to work together for what we should be working together on, which is which is defending students access to a high quality education system.
0: We don't want to talk walkouts. we don't want to talk lockouts. We don't want to talk strikes, certainly. Uh, but uh, at some point uh, you have to draw a line in the sand. Uh, is Is there a tentative date for that? If you're going to start doing this by the end of September, uh, when would you want to see resolution, and how soon are you going to get frustrated? You know, <laughs> or you're already frustrated. I guess but <laughs>
3: <laughs> that's that's fair to say. I'm certainly frustrated by the positions this government has taken. I'm frustrated by the fact that um, that that uh, educators are being laid off, that students are losing access to to caring professionals in in their schools. If we get to the table and we're making process, uh, progress, and and that progress is slow, I'm you know we'll stay there and we'll keep uh, we'll keep hammering away at things. If they um, simply refuse to listen to our concerns about uh, the future of the education system. Um, then we're going to be in a in a more difficult situation. But for now, I would say we'll get to that table. We'll put proposals there that are that are good for students and and let's all hope that uh, that this government has begun to listen to parents and to students themselves, quite frankly, who have been very articulate in defending their interests, um, and that we can make some progress.
0: We'll stay in touch as uh, this evolves over the next little while. Harvey, thanks so much for the time today. Greatly appreciated. My pleasure. Thank you. Harvey Bishop, President of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation.
1: The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.
0: The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.